We are in the midst of uh, looking at why church. We did why Jesus through uh, February and March and April, and now we're asking the question, why church? Why do we have a church? Why would I belong to the church? What is the church about? Today we're in Acts chapter 11, all right? And we're going to look at the name we claim. Now, on June 25th, we're going to start an exposition of the book of Ephesians. We're going to build it around the theme of grace. Grace is mentioned more in this short little book for the length that it is than any other book in the Bible. And it's uh, going to be our theme for looking at the two sections, traditionally, of Ephesians. The first part, which is about the theology of grace and how God gives His grace, how we are in Christ and that truth that is supreme. And then the last part, how we work that out on a daily basis as parents and spouses and in the workplace and all other aspects of our lives. All right, so that's where we're headed. So we've got a couple more messages looking at the church from the book of Acts and then looking at the book of Ephesians. All right, so today we're in Acts chapter 11. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. Where the scripture says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. I don't know how it came about that very first time. Luke doesn't tell us. I don't know that he knew. But at some point in the proclamation of the gospel here, we have some Christians who were Jews, who arrived in Antioch and explained the good news about the Lord Jesus to people who had not a single drop of Jewish blood in them, nor were they converts or proselytes to Judaism. They were strictly Greeks, all right? My brother sent in, I guess, his blood for a DNA test to see what our lineage is because my father 
had surmised before he died that we had some Jewish blood in us. And I was sort of hoping that I had some Jewish blood in me, but as it turns out, not a drop. All right? So you are looking at a pure Gentile here. No Jewish lineage at all. Not related to Abraham or Moses or even Jesus biologically. It was a big leap. I don't know who did it. Cyprus was an island in the sea, in the Mediterranean Sea. Cyrene was a major city in what is now Libya. So missionaries from Cyrene, which is now Libya, went to Antioch, which is at the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, to tell people there about Jesus. Now, the opposite just happened, if the news is correct, and terrorists from Libya went to Egypt to kill Coptic Christians, all right? So it's that what is now Libya is where these missionaries came from. Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Jesus. You remember this? They conscripted him, forced him, drafted him to carry the cross of Jesus. And many believe that Simon became a follower of Jesus after that. Perhaps he was the one who carried the gospel back to Cyrene where the church flourished there and eventually sent out missionaries. We don't know. It's possible that Simon or one of, one of these folks from Cyrene who believed in Jesus arrived in Antioch and they were just telling the good news. Maybe Cyrene was even, uh, Simon was even telling about carrying the cross of Jesus. Who knows? And, and a Gentile just asked, hey, tell me more about this. Maybe somebody asked. Maybe the folks that first shared the good news didn't realize what a leap this was going to be. Maybe they just naturally assumed that a man who was dead and buried, rising from the dead, was good news not just for Jews, but everybody on planet Earth. And so just spontaneously, they began to tell people outside the Jewish community. But you know, it had to be a big deal for some of those Jews in Antioch who had become followers of Jesus, who still saw themselves as Jews, to show up one day at church and there are Gentiles, pagans, not converts, not proselytes. They're wanting to worship with them. That had to be a stretch for some of them. I know it was. These guys are going to come and be part of our church, part of our gathering. They're going to sing the songs and offer the prayers. They're coming in to be with us. Well, it was a big enough deal that the church in Jerusalem, which was sort of the key church there in that first generation, decided to send a very good man, a very wise man, a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, a man named Barnabas. He said, Barnabas, we want you to go to Antioch and check this out. Now, Barnabas was later well-traveled. I don't know how well-traveled he was at this time. I don't know if he'd ever been in a metropolitan space like Antioch. Syrian Antioch was just a few miles from the Mediterranean Sea. It was on a river there. It was a port. They say it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, only after Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. They say there were 500,000 people in this teeming metropolitan area, the center of commerce 
and trade and politics and power and this center of paganism. It was a hodgepodge of people. Yes, there were Jews there as there were all over the empire. But they were far outnumbered by the slaves who were part of Antioch, the indigenous population that was part of Antioch, the merchants and business people who were part of Antioch, and the Roman soldiers and other authorities who were part of Antioch. And everywhere they turned when Barnabas went into this city, he was seeing signs of paganism. These are not Jews. They do not believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are temples to these pagan gods. This is the city of Antioch. And it is here where people who had no connection to Abraham or Moses heard the good news of Jesus Christ and said, I believe that and I want Jesus as my Savior and Lord, and they became followers of Jesus. And the folks apparently outside of the church who were witnessing now this confluence of Jews and Gentiles believing in Jesus realized that their true identity was not about Abraham and Moses so much as Jesus Christ. Jesus was his first name. The angel gave him that name. Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we want you to call him Jesus, and his title is Christ, and that's the Greek word for Messiah, for the anointed one, the promised one. They looked in on the church, and they said, these folks are not really about Abraham or Moses. They're about Christ, Christos in the Greek it would be, and so they called these followers of Jesus Christianos, Christians, little Christs. And it was the first time the term had ever been used. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, this pagan metropolis. Christian. It's the name we want to hear. It's the name we want to hear. We want to hear this term. It's okay for somebody to say, so you're a Christian. It's the name we want to hear because it identifies us with the one whom we love, the one who saved us by his grace. It actually puts a finger upon the very core of who we are. You are a Christ one. It's the name we want to hear. Do you know the word Christian is used here sort of as a historical footnote by the historian Luke? And it's used by Agrippa, King Agrippa, who is Jewish, who Paul, when Paul says to him, explaining the gospel from its Old Testament roots, he says, Agrippa, King, do you believe the law and the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa says, whoa, are you trying to persuade me to become a Christian? 
It's the second time that the word is used in the New Testament, in the whole Bible, actually. And the third time is when the Apostle Peter is talking about suffering to his people. And in his letter, he writes and says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but rather give praise that he is worthy to bear that name. Christian, it's the name we want to hear. Webster defines it as of or having to do with Christianity, Christian churches, Christian people. It also defines it as behavior that is kind or generous. So you're a Christian if you behave in a kind and generous way, according to Merriam-Webster. And so you have here in Antioch these people who are identified with Jesus as being Christians. And we want that identity too. We want our proclamation and witness to be clear enough and our lifestyle to be distinctive enough that people would look at us and say, oh, you're a Christian. It's the name we want to hear. And it's the name we want to own. Christian, yes, that's who I am. I own that name. It wasn't long for the Christians. If they got this word from their enemies, from the Gentiles, from people who were non-Christians, if they're the first ones who said, you guys are Christians, which appears to be the case, it wasn't long before the church said, Christians, we like that. We like that. And so the name became popular. They had a little difficulty, you know, identifying who these folks really were. They called them people of the way, followers of the way. They called them Nazarenes or members of the sect of the Nazarene. Some of them called them believers or disciples. And now it is Christians and the name took hold. And the church said, yes, we like that. And so it was popularized. They owned the name, you see. They wanted the name Christian. It felt like it fit. And we want to own it as well. Because translating the name, you might say, belonging to Christ or attending to Christ. It's almost like a slave belonging to Christ. Paul says, I am the slave of Jesus Christ. He uses the word doulos, and it can be trans translated bond slave or servant. But it's as if he belongs to Jesus Christ when he says, and he introduces himself that way. He, he wants people to know that he is a slave of Jesus, that he belongs to Jesus. And the word Christian means that I belong to Jesus. So it's not just an identity that somebody gives me from the outside, but now it's how I self-identify in the world. Here in Antioch, we are happy to be Christians because... We want to self-identify with Jesus. How do you self-identify, by the way? Somebody asks who you are. What, what are you up to? So, so who's David Crosby and what's he up to? What's he about? How would you self-identify? Would you uh, self-identify as a follower of Jesus, as a 
Christian. The word Christian may need some definition, you know. It's kind of got away from us over these 2,000 years. It's used a lot as an adjective and also as a noun. There are 2.2 billion Christians in the world today. It is by far the largest religion on planet Earth. And that's one way the word is used. You'll see people identified as Christians. And the 2.2 billion Christians includes all the different groups who think of Jesus as the Savior and maybe the Bible as their book to follow spiritually and the church is the gathering of the faithful and so all over the world 2.2 billion christians but now we have christian history and christian culture and all kinds of things that are described as christian so when you self-identify as a christian you want to be able to explain what you mean so what would you mean you told somebody, well, I'm a Christian. My neighbor told me, we are Hindu. And I said, okay, we're Christians. And he knew that we were. And what does that mean? How do you, how do you explain the word Christian? You could explain it culturally. You are part of Christian America in the sense that there are many Christians here. The church has had a great influence in this country. And so... You could self-identify that way, or you could say this, which is the fundamental, primary, and first meaning of the word. I belong to Jesus. Lock, stock, and barrel, I am his. He is the reason that I live and move and have my being, and he's what I am about. That's who I am. I belong to Jesus. That would be the proper way if you were to follow these first Christians at Antioch, if you were to follow in their footsteps, you would be saying, I belong to Jesus, that's who I am, that's how I self-identify. There are other things that might describe me, there are other adjectives I might, might use, but this term most fully describes my life, my goals, my passion, and who I am. I am a Christian, I am a follower of Jesus. I hope that's in your heart to do. It would be a good exercise for you in this moment of worship to think about how you self-identify at school and at work. How you connect yourself and help people understand who you are. And if there is no faith component to that, if you're not talking about yourself as a follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus or a Christian, then you might want to rethink your self-identity. Some of you are going off to college and it's going to be scary to be in that dorm. And the question will be, okay, how are you going to describe yourself? You know, how are you going to self-identify when you get to that dorm at Ole Miss or LSU? You gonna, are you going to be faithful in this or are you going to distance yourself from Jesus as Lord? What are you going to do? There'll be a moment at work when you have to self-identify. Somebody's going to enter into a conversation with you, and they're going to want you, you know, to sort of describe who you are. And the question would be, how are you, going to, are you going to own this? Are you going to own it, or are you going to avoid it? Are you going to bury this? as part? Of, are you going to think of this as part of your past? 
You got a new identity you're going to put out there instead of, I belong to Jesus. What are you going to say? It's the name we want to own. Some people would say, if you're not willing to own this, you're not really his. Right? If you're not willing to own this, you're not really his. So think about it. It's important. It's the name we want to hear, yes. That man is a Christian. We would think of that perhaps as a, as a great way to be described. It's the name we want to own. Yes, that's who I am. But I'll tell you something else about this name that I think happened at Antioch. Surely it did as they observed the lifestyle of these folks who came from Cyprus and Cyrene and came from Jerusalem and also as these new believers began to congregate in their city and they watched them and how they lived. I think it's a name we want to earn. Christian, the name I want to earn. Now, we know you can't earn salvation. I hope you're not under the illusion that you can work hard enough and be moral enough that God will say one day, well, come on into heaven. You're one of the great ones. <laughs> I hope you're not under that illusion, okay? We are only saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, and grace is unearned favor from God. If it was earned favor, it wouldn't be grace. It is unearned favor, okay? Everybody all right with that? So I'm not telling you you can be saved, you can earn salvation, because you can't. It is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His grace that He saved us, okay? So that's solid. But any self-identity that you use in the world is both who you are and who you want to be. There's a sense in it of who you want to be. So if somebody were to say to you, so you're a Christian? You'd say, yes, I am. And I hope that my life reflects that, neighbor. I hope that you see that in me because that's what I want to show you. All right? There is a part of coming to Christ which is moral in nature. It's about your character. It's about the things you do, the habits you embrace, the way that you talk, and who you are. Did you know that in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 5, no immoral or envious person will participate in the kingdom of Christ. Did you know that was in the Bible? In other words, there is a kind of transformation that occurs when a person truly belongs to Christ. When the word Christian really applies to you, there's a transformation that goes on in your behavior. It affects who you are, how you talk, and what you do. And so the word Christian is in a way an aspiration. God, like Barnabas, may I be described one day as a good man full of the Holy Spirit and 
faith. God, let that be a descriptor for me one day. And every day, I don't feel like that. I don't feel like I measure up to the word, to my own self-identity. But it is a goal which I strive toward. And Paul, the apostle, has this in him as well. He says, I'm forgetting the things that are behind. I'm reaching forth to the things that are before. Have I always behaved like a Christian? Like I belong to Christ? No. I can look back in my life and see those places where I have not conformed to what Jesus would have wanted me to have done. But that doesn't mean that my future has to be dragged back into my past. I can get forgiveness for the things that are behind, and God forgets those things when he forgives them. And I can forget those things too and go on from this point to be the person God has called me to be. And I want that in my life. In fact, you ought to live in daytight compartments. Getting up in the morning, ready to be long to Christ in every way. To be who he's called you to be. Ready to go to work and stand up for him and self-identify as a person who is a Christian who belongs to Jesus. And, and throughout that day, give your energy and time and devotion and focus to being this person God has called you to be. Look, we, we must do this. We do not sink to the lower levels of our nature. We have a higher calling. And every day we must remind ourselves of this. The person that you are may not be wholly the person that you want to be. But you've got to have something in you that draws you forward and onward to be the person you want to be. And what is that? It is Christ in me which is the hope of glory. It is the truth that God is day by day conforming me to the image of his Son. It's that the Holy Spirit is at working me, convicting me of sin, and drawing me toward who God has called me to be. I want to be all that God intended for me to be. And so day by day I move toward that goal and that purpose. You may not be able to say, I am behaving as a Christian in every area of my life. So then, in order that you might own this, you go out today to change the things that do not conform to that confession. Get rid of the things that don't fit and bring in the things that do so that you can honor Christ in every way. Now, Antioch got the gospel in part because they killed Stephen, all right? They killed him. They beat him to death with stones in the streets of Jerusalem, and his blood flowed out on those cobblestone roads. And the apostle Paul Saul of Tarsus was standing there holding the cloaks of those who beat him to death with those stones. And after he was martyred and murdered in the streets of Jerusalem, a great persecution broke out against the church, and part of that was Saul of Tarsus breathing fire and wanting to lock up Christians just because they identified with Jesus. And that persecution sent 
Christians all over the place. It sent them to Samaria, other parts of the world, and it sent them to Antioch as well. And these Christians arrived in Antioch realizing that identifying with Jesus can cost you your life. It did with Stephen. It did with James, the brother of John. And they could probably name others who were martyred for the faith. And you may be thinking, identifying with Jesus is going to cost me something. If I walk in that dorm room and I identify with Jesus and I say, I'm a Christian, I belong to Jesus, and I act that way, it's going to cost me something. There are people that are going to make fun of me and maybe they're not going to like me or they're not going to be wanting to be in my company. That could happen. It could happen at your work that if you actually identify with Jesus as a Christian and said, you know, I am a follower of Jesus. That's who I am. I believe he's the way, the truth, and the life. That There may be some folks who would put you down for that. That's why when Peter addressed the idea of being a Christian, he said, look, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, for heaven's sakes. Don't be ashamed about that. Thank God that you have been able to bear his name. In fact, Paul had this goal in mind. He said, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. There's an identity with Jesus that you can't fully understand when everything is good and going your way and nobody's angry at you for your faith. There's an identity with Jesus that you begin to understand when you suffer pain for his name. And they were suffering in those first years. That's why Peter addresses it and talks about it. That's why the writer of Hebrews talks about it. Right now, the Islamic State is plotting death and destruction in Europe. And they are claiming it when it happens. They feel like Europe is a collection of Christian Nations. Maybe you never thought of France as Christian or Germany as Christian or these other nations as Christian. In fact, maybe you thought, well, they seem to be post-Christian to me. But from the radical Muslims' point of view, these are nations that the soldiers of the caliphate attack because they carry the banner of the cross. Have you heard that term? And so they are attacking any nation that carries the banner of the cross in Europe. Now I want you to think about the banner of the cross for a minute, all right? The cross is the most common Christian symbol. Wouldn't you agree? I've just used the word Christian as an adjective. The most common Christian symbol is the cross. I think that perhaps New Orleans has more crosses per capita than any city on earth. I think if you could do a statistical analysis, you might discover that there's more crosses here. I suspect there are few churches in America that have as many crosses within about a quarter mile of their building 
as First Baptist New Orleans. Have you walked through the cemetery? You know, I didn't really notice all those crosses until the flood. And then I saw them twice. Once in the air and once in the water. I thought, wow, there's thousands of crosses in Greenwood Cemetery. And it's true. In fact, I've driven those streets many times and noticed almost every single mausoleum has a cross. Almost every one of them. Now, what is the cross? What is it? It's an electric chair. That's what it is. It's the gurney where you get the poisonous dose. Where they kill you. That's what the cross is. A cross is an instrument of execution. Why is it the symbol of our faith? Because this is it. He didn't have to lay down on that cross. He chose to. Amen. He himself said, nobody's taking my life from me. I'm laying it down. And the cross is a statement of the self-giving love of Christ on our behalf. The cross is the reason he could say to his followers, if you want to follow me, you deny yourself, you take up your cross every day, and you follow me. That's what it means to follow me. It's the reason John could say in his letter, look, he laid down his life for us, so we need to lay down our lives for one another. I think in Antioch, there was this sense in the Christian community that, man, you could lay down your life at any time. Following Jesus is dangerous business. And what it means to follow him is you take up your cross. And it is the sac sacrificing love, this laying down of life that is the hallmark of, of Christ himself and of his followers. Truly, in the cross you have this symbol that represents our Lord Does it represent you? Is the cross the symbol of who you are? If it fits the Lord Jesus, does it fit you? The Apostle Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Would you say the same? The Apostle Paul said, I die daily. Could we say the same? When we self-identify with Jesus... Sometimes we get discouraged and we think, you know, it's just not worth it. There's too much about it. And so we start distancing ourselves from the one who saved us and died on the cross for us. And the writer of Hebrews says, when you start getting discouraged about your walk and you feel like you're getting beat up over being a Christian and it just doesn't feel like you know, the thing to do anymore. He said, I want you to, to look to Jesus. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews has a specific place that he wants you to look. 
Okay, so if you're one of those who feels like you're crawling instead of running, and you feel like you're flat on your back instead of standing tall, if you feel like you've been buffered and beaten and you just exhausted, if you feel like you're at the end of your rope, okay, and that's you, you feel like I just can't take anymore, I don't know what I can, if I can take anymore, if that's you, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Well, where am I going to look at him? You want me to watch him as he walks on water, as he raises the dead, as he cleanses the leper or heals the blind man? Where do you want me to look when I look to Jesus? And the author of Hebrews says, look unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Where I want you to see Jesus is hanging on that cross. You're in trouble. You feel discouraged. Pain has come your way. You've been struck by a terrible bereavement or loss. You don't know if you can keep going. You don't know if it's worth it. Look unto Jesus, who endured the cross, despising the shame. Look to him so you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's what the author of Hebrews says to people who are suffering for their faith. And the Holy Spirit says it to us today as well. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's the name I hear. It's the name I own. It's the name I earn. Bow with me, please. If you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, what a great moment just to bow your head and say, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me for my sin. I open my life to you. Would you just pray that prayer, that simple prayer of faith in Christ, receiving his forgiveness, repenting of sin, confessing him as Lord. Father, I pray today that by your Holy Spirit you will do your work in us. Help us hear. Help us respond.